Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor. I'm Kira Smith. Today, I have the honor of being joined by Dr. Irving Weissman, a professor of pathology and developmental biology and the director of the Institute of Stem Cell Biology and Regenerative Medicine at Stanford University. Recently, Dr. Weissman received the Wallace H. Coulter Award for Lifetime Achievement in Hematology at the ASH Annual Meeting in New Orleans. Dr. Weissman, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Uh, to start off, would you like to tell me about your background and how you came into this field? I was 10 years old, and a teacher uh, gave me a book to read called Microbe Hunters, the lives and discoveries, semi-fictionalized, just to, to get the idea of the families and social impacts. But it was a spectacular book. And... Um, so it had people like Pasteur, Ehrlich, uh, Koch, all of the people who really did establish how you could study something and know that what you were studying was reproducible and true. And Robert Koch, of course, how you could isolate the agency that causes, the agents that cause the disease. So when I was um, 16 in high school, um, I heard that there was a pathologist in town who, although he was at a private hospital, was carrying out a research program, was editor of a journal, and was doing lots of experiments on the uh, genetics of tissue transplantation in mice. So um, I convinced him that uh, it would be good if I could work in the lab. And he quickly transitioned me to, even though I was a high school student, to owning projects. He did it because he was uh, teaching me Socratically. He wouldn't tell me the results, but when we would go through a paper uh, together, he would explain the terms which was the hardest part, the uh, Latin and Greek that we do to uh, make sure nobody else understands what we do. Um, and showed me a paper by Medawar's group on immunological tolerance. And that intrigued me enough that I started my own experiments. So from age 16 or 17 on, I've done my own experiments. I have mentors or patrons who we talk back and forth, but I really have done my own. Now that was important because I was never disciplined enough to get great grades. I did good grades, but not great. And the only reason I got into the colleges and the medical school that I applied to was my research. My teachers told me. I only applied to Stanford Medical School because it was required five years instead of four. And then that new curriculum, 1960, um, you had the basic sciences done in three years instead of two. So you have didactic classes, just half a day, starting your first year. And you have half day then during the year, full time in the summer, half day, full time, 
half day full time. Well, that's a lot of time for research. And um, I took advantage of it, did a lot of work on the thymus and immunological tolerance, went to Oxford to work with Jim Gowans between my clinical years, and there showed that the thymus mainly made cells that emigrated out to populate the immune system. Now, that was important only because it was definitive. I would put label like tritiated adenosine or tritiated thymidine in the thymus of a living rat and infuse the cold nucleoside to prevent uptake at the nucleoside level by cells outside of the thymus. And I think that was amongst the first lineage tracing experiments done. I knew for sure what the cells were. I knew that they went to a particular area of the lymphoid organs and avoided the other. The other turned out to be B cells. Uh, and worked out a lot on homing receptors and, and so on, uh, which was really good science, but also very practical because a company about 10 years ago made antibodies against the homing receptor we showed that T and B cells use to go to the gut, like the Pyrus patch appendix tonsil, and that selectively took them there. They got stimulated in those lymphoid organs, and then their effector cells went to those organs selectively. But if you think about COVID and the fact that we immunize in the arm and we don't generate any of those cells, we are preparing for protection of the body, but not protection against infection in the nasopharyngeal cavity. So anyway, that's, that's the kind of background. And as I was looking at T cell development, my patron mentor at Stanford Medical School, Henry Kaplan, had worked on uh, how radiation causes acute lymphocytic leukemia, the T cell type. And he had discovered that a retrovirus was activated by the radiation and the retrovirus then attacked many cells in the thymus and caused leukemia. And uh, so that was a strong place to be working on a cancer-related subject related to the normal cells whose development I was studying. So probably the biggest thing is that um, by the time it was the mid-70s, I was asking questions about whether blood formation and blood-forming stem cells can be tracked all the way back to embryonic life. And at Oxford again, I showed with Richard Gardner and Ginny Papiano that the yolk sac blood islands before the circulation between the uh, yolk sac and the embryo proper connects, that those cells can be transferred to the yolk sac of a different animal. And the main point there is that they developed lifelong blood formation of all types we could look at. Now, since then, a lot of people think that's wrong, but I did the experiments with my own hands.
so I know exactly that it's right and that you can have different interpretations because we transplanted cells from one embryo pre-circulation to another. Um, and whenever you do a transplant, of course, it could be an artifact. But I'm Great. pretty sure it wasn't, yeah. <laughs> so that led me to think, well, how, what is the origin of the cells that make the immune system? And we developed, and then by 1986, we're almost there to isolate the mouse, hematopoietic or blood-forming stem cell. 1988, we made it for mouse. We knew we wanted to be able to go to clinical. My dean did not grant my request to expand my space or to let me have mice that were highly immune deficient uh, in the colony. And so I've started a company with Mike McCune called Systemics. There we isolated human hematopoietic stem cells pure within three years. And we did clinical trials. I'll just mention one because it's highly relevant to and in a big education for the oncology community. So at that time, between say 1990 and 2000, Breast cancer was being tested on whether you could cure it with high dose combination chemotherapy. And eventually you got to a dose that you wiped out the blood forming system. And so many labs uh, championed rescuing the blood forming system with the patient's own cells that had been taken before the high dose chemotherapy. So they would take bone marrow or mobilized blood. You can mobilize many of the cells that are restorative into the blood with a particular protocol. They would freeze that down, treat the woman, thaw it and give it back. Well, we had isolated hematopoietic stem cells that were rare cells in the mobilized blood. But we had shown in mice that those were the only cells that self-renewed and gave rise to hematopoiesis for life. And then we built an assay to look for breast cancer cells. We found most of the mobilized blood had cancer cells in it. And so they were all giving back cancer to a woman who had just gone through massive chemotherapy. Um, but we were giving back cancer-free stem cells. We showed the purification eliminated the cancer from breast cancer, mobilized blood, and uh, lymphoma also. But the main one we did was breast cancer. Our company was purchased by a large pharma, partially in um, 1992, before clinical trials, but then in late 1996, when we were in the middle of these trials. And the large pharma said, yes, of course, we're gonna do everything that you want. We're gonna do immunological tolerance with pure stem cells. We're gonna do gene modification of pure stem cells, and we'll continue doing stem cell rescue to allow very high dose combination chemo in a variety of cancers. But, in fact, they didn't do any of it. 
knowing that that project was gone, at least at that time, and I haven't told you the results yet, but it was very striking at the three-year point, but we hadn't had long-term. So I was also head of a National Academy Committee on Stem Cells, and nuclear transfer not only to clone human beings or animals, but to clone stem cells, embryonic stem cells. And when we made our report, and the next day the President Bush said, yeah, that's all fine, but we won't fund it. We'll fund cell lines that have been made before, but nothing about nuclear transfer, nothing about fetal tissue going forward. And that led to a number of parents of diabetics and children of Alzheimer's patients contacting me and really pushing pretty hard to say, will the ending of that research affect our family's disease? I said, yeah, absolutely. But it'll take a long time to get there. And so if you stop it now, if you try to start, you're still going to have that long time. And I would tell people that it's at least 10 years and maybe up to 15 or 20 years from a discovery to an approved product by the FDA or the European equivalent. Nevertheless, it won in a landslide. So that set up the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine. And eventually that allowed us and others to fund research through the agency as if we were starting a biotech, but doing it at our university. And we don't have to worry about how much money it's going to make. Just does it work? And can you do a clean enough experiment to show it works? So. I'll tell you now about the breast cancer outcome because around 2010 to 12, I was, I had just stepped down as head of our cancer center. I was head of the stem cell institute, but I had told the uh, people in bone marrow transplant that it would be important to see what happened to all those patients who'd gone through this therapy. And so, 74 patients got the usual mobilized blood. They weren't prospectively randomized, but they were the same docs, same drugs, same protocol, except they got mobilized blood to rescue them. 15 were rescued with their own cancer-free stem cells. The median survival of those giving mobilized blood was two years, same as palliative intent chemotherapy same as the rest of the country found out from a paper um, by Statmauer et al. from the Eastern Oncology Group. And so that ended that line of therapy. But our patients tested, you know, in the trial with frankly metastatic disease, 1996 to 1998, their median survival was 10 years. Their overall survival at 15 years and now 25 years is 33% without disease. That's amazing. It is amazing. 
But as I go to talk to, I got back from that big company, the antibodies, the hybridomas that make the antibodies to isolate stem cells pure. I put them at Stanford in a not-for-profit setting. I didn't want us to end up in this problem that money was going to be the issue rather than does this work. Um, now that took a long time. I've got them there. I've shown they work in testing. So we'll go forward. But when I talked to the breast cancer oncologist who never, those that never did bench research. So everything they learned was by memorization. They said, no, no, no. We know that stem cells don't work. So I'd say, how do you know that? And they said, well, here's the papers. And every one of the papers was mobilized blood, contaminated with cancer. So I'd shown the data and they'd sit and they says, yeah, but we know that stem cells don't work. You go back, you look at the title of the mobilized blood papers. They didn't call it mobilized blood anymore. They called it a stem cell transplant. The single most important thing I can get across in this interview is that the main barrier to taking these translations to people isn't an ignorant public. It's a biased, clinical population that don't know what they don't know, but they still are the authorities, see the patients and pass them on. So it'll be something long and big. The last thing that led to the award, I think, was because we had blood forming stem cells and in mice and in humans, we knew the very first step of differentiation was to a cell that at the single cell level could make all blood cells, but it didn't self-renew like the stem cell. And so it was multipotent, but not self-renewing. So now we had that cell, the stem cell, that multipotent cell, and then we worked out all the steps to blood. So we could purify every cell. So that would allow us to look at human chronic myelogenous leukemia, blast crisis coming from it, acute myelogenous leukemia, myelodysplastic syndrome, and all of these things. As we could ask the question, do the mutations that lead to human acute myelogenous leukemia, do they accumulate in stem cells, hematopoietic stem cells, or do they accumulate in a cell that normally doesn't self-renew, but these might give self-renewal to it? And we showed, even back in 2000, that the Hiroshima hospital samples where people got acute myelogenous leukemia, and so they translocated AML1 to Edo, which as an oncogene, we found that that translocation was present in the multipotent progenitor, and that multipotent progenitor would transfer the leukemia. But that same exact translocation was in hematopoietic stem cells, the precursor of the multipotent progenitor, and they didn't transfer leukemia.
So then we did a study of doing fresh AML samples, sequenced their DNA to find the mutations that that patient had, made DNA primers so we could look at the mutant allele and the normal allele from a person's blood. And then we looked in their hematopoietic stem cell. And in all 21 that we looked at that way, all but the last mutation were in hematopoietic stem cells. So then we realized those genes didn't have to turn a non-self-renewing cell into a self-renewing cell because they were hitchhiking on self-renewing cells. They didn't have to do that. The last mutation was always the oncogene that people had discovered. FLT3 internal tendon repeat, NRAS, KRAS, activation of beta catenin. Okay? But on its own, didn't cause leukemia when put into either multipotent progenitors or hematopoietic stem cell. The first mutations in all of them altered the hematopoietic stem cell's ability to give rise to daughter cells that shut off some genes and turned on others. Gene expression. So mutations were TET2 that is required to demethylate cytosine and DNA. I know that's a little complicated, but that's to allow a chromosome that's been closed to open up and say, okay, I'm a multipotent progenitor, not a stem cell anymore, because this gene is important for it. Another gene was DNMT3A, loss of function. It methylated cytosine in the DNA to close down and therefore shut off. So each of those were in most of the leukemias and other ones. But so we learned that there was a progression to it. And when we compared for ourselves, the gene expression profile of the pure leukemia stem cell and the pure hematopoietic stem cell that had gone through no mutations, we picked up CD47 on the surface of the leukemia cells. And we said, that must be important. So we made blocking antibodies to CD47, and we found that that would enable macrophages to eat it because it turned out CD47 was a don't eat me signal working through SERP alpha. So we got a CIRM grant and both in the UK and in the US, we did all the early studies as if we were a biotech, but we did it at Stanford. And within four years, we filed an IND going from a mouse antibody, no preclinical to a lot. And by that time, we had discovered all cancers have CD47. We found that the antibody for particular diseases could be curative, even if the patients had um, run out of options of chemotherapy because they were resistant to all the drugs they got. So in AML, old folks, 
who get it, and myelodysplastic syndrome, a pre-leukemic syndrome, we found that if you add anti-CD47 that we had shown was safe, humanized, a particular immunoglobulin type, to azacytidine, a non-curative drug, but that helps increase the eat me signal on those cells, the combination of blocking don't eat me and increasing eat me selectively on the pathological cells that all patients respond. And by the time my company got sold, you can't prevent it. Um, I'm going to be serious about that in a second. By the time the company got sold, um, we had at least two or three years where the disease didn't come back in 60% of the leukemias and MDS. And we showed that combining anti-CD47 with rituximab, the one that sees lymphoma CD20, the, one, the antibody that sees lymphoma CD20 interacts with what's called the high affinity FC receptor on macrophages. So it is a phagocytic receptor and increases the eat me signal even more than what azacytidine did to increase the eat me signal. And if you combined rituximab and anti-47, in patients who nothing worked anymore, not rituximab alone, not chemo, not rituximab plus chemo, over half of them, the tumor started shrinking. And I think the last time I saw it, half, about half of those went into molecular remission. So we've developed anti-leukemia and anti-myelodysplastic syndrome, anti-lymphoma. We're bringing back hematopoietic stem cell transplants for each of the diseases that we're looking at, including metastatic breast cancer. I just have to convince some doctors somewhere to let their patients come into the trial. Um, and we trained a whole bunch of people on the way who are uh, following that. And as I said, all of the experiments I got to do because I learned in high school that I could think about something and design an experiment, even though it may have been crude at the time. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for, you know, sharing all about your work. It was really interesting to hear about. So you mentioned the, um, the barriers in translating the research from the lab to the clinic. Um, would you have any advice either for the broader scientific community or even just oncology clinicians who are, you know, in the clinic um, about how to overcome these barriers? Sure. First, I would recommend all oncology residencies include lab time to see how tough it is to come up with answers, not be so glib that you think you understand it when it wasn't understood. Second, that the experiment in California to fund at an academic center had way more value than I could even believe because 
we had to get together the people who would help us and had done regulatory air toxicity and all the stuff you do to go to the FDA. But they would meet with us. We didn't have a CEO. We didn't have a business development person. We were just meeting every week with the team to say, what do we do this week? What happened? What went wrong? What do we change? And so on. And I wanted to keep doing that until we finished the phase one trial because we got enough money to do. The lead up to the trial, filing our uh, IND in the UK and the US, and then fund at least phase one of the trial. But the university made the decision that there was too much financial desire from large and small pharma uh, and venture capital companies. So we had to form a company. Now that company 47 was the leader in this kind of antibody research and all of the others that got licensed on one part of or another are behind. And that's, I'm convinced that the people who discovered CD47, how it works, were seeing everything that was happening in the preclinical and clinical trials and had the position that they could opine on what it meant and where you should go. Every one of my discoveries that's made its way to big pharma goes to silos. Oh, here's somebody who does PKPD, this, the level of your protein in the serum. And here's somebody who does transplant or, you know, and it's hard for them to talk to each other. And usually there's nobody there who made the original discovery. So if you think about it, we have set up systems largely because all of us are under the same economic system. A company is made that has to distribute and show safety and so on. A lot of money. But we and they get rid of the people who made the discovery early because they get in the way. They have ideas what you should do and they know that they're not going to focus if they listen to them. But they don't know what to focus on. And so I think that if there's any lesson to come from this, the first lesson is that you need to find a way to fund things that are just post-discovery until an IND at least can be filed mm -hmm. and that they carry it forward because only they will see when a mouse or a monkey, you know, has an aberrant reaction. They'll know what to do. They know the system so well. They know how many variables you can look at. Um, and it would be way more efficient because biotechs spend a lot of money for early phase to have biotechs trying to chase down this stuff that they could have gotten the answer from the inventor of the field, but they needed to get rid of that inventor so they could get on with their business. Um, the final one is that the people 
who get into great colleges from high schools and get into medical schools and get into high-end training in hematology, oncology, you know, the real high-level, high-income, but highly interesting subspecialties, they get there by memorizing and being disciplined to memorize all the way. Well, I'm an example of somebody who shouldn't have gotten into them except for having publications from high school on. Mm -hmm. And I think that if people were honest with themselves and they're looking at who they pick at each of these stages of an academic career, did they ever look at the people they took and the people they didn't take to see who was the success and who led a field? And of course they didn't. And so I think that a study needs to be done to think about, can you find out outcome measures by measuring outcomes? Right. Look at what they did early on. Look at what the granting agencies did with their grants and on and on, because I think that if we could understand what are the properties of mind and character that allows somebody to go on and inquire and do experiments versus those which are critical in my field to become a doctor. Now, being a good doctor, I'm not saying every doctor should do it, but you know, every good doctor has recall terrific recall you see a b c and d you do f for the patient right and if you didn't have that smart memorized a lot of experience reinforcement to do it we'd have a lot of trouble but don't ever ask those people what's going to work what they would do for research to change an incurable disease to something that might be cured because they have no background. One last question I have for you is, do you have any advice um, for medical students or residents who are interested in becoming involved in basic science research? Yeah. Take the time in their medical school time off to do research, to look for the field as early as your first or second year medical school, certainly as an undergraduate, because that's what gets you into graduate school. There's nobody who, who comes into graduate school just with great grades. They have to have done research, and we have to be able to talk to them about the research they've done. So I would say get involved early, as early as you can, and then that will help you see the field you should be in, the medical field you should be in, because if you're doing research and you see it will apply to cardiology, but not hematology, then you can start tailoring your career early, not late. Great. That's really great advice. Thank you. All right. All right. Well, those are all the questions I had for you. So thank you again. Good. Yes. Nice talking to you. Nice talking to you too. Thank you for listening to Oncology Data Advisor. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. In addition to our podcast, the Oncology Data Advisor site features expert perspectives and news stories on the latest in cancer research and treatments, all found at oncdata.com.